Line 17 from the Dao De Jing says something to the effect that the leader that governs best is invisible. When things happen, the people say we did it ourselves. In similar fashion, in today's podcast conversation, our guest said, our work is to allow our patients to be able to hear what's going on inside of themselves without imposing our ideas or structures. Do we trust our patients to really have the answers to their problems? It's a good question. Most of modern medicine holds the body to be untrustworthy. And most of us, well, we spend our days helping people whose body apparently has failed, dysfunctioned, or mutinied against them. What are your thoughts and beliefs about the trustworthiness of the body? It's a helpful question to keep in mind as we get into today's conversation. Hi, I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Welcome to the anniversary show celebrating one year of the podcast. In just a few minutes, we're going to get into a fantastic discussion on how we communicate with our patients. We're going to look into how to dialogue with the body itself by using words to get around words. Doesn't that just sound deliciously Chinese medicine-y? But first, I got a few things I want to say. I want to start with thanking you, you the listeners. As a podcasting pal of mine in Taiwan pointed out some time ago, when you begin a podcast, all you have is your integrity and no audience. Wow, what a difference a year makes. I want to also thank the sponsors who make this show possible, the guests who bring you the amazing stories and learning and teaching that you get from this. And especially I want to thank our patients because without our patients, without the motivation to do the work that we do, well, we wouldn't be doing this stuff and you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. I have thoroughly enjoyed all the conversations over the past year and I've learned something from each one of them. Still, there's a few that are my favorites as they moved me in some kind of a deep way. First one is the one I did way back at the beginning with Deborah Batts on treating back pain during pregnancy. Fantastic show about how we can help and serve women where Western medicine basically fails them. Back pain during pregnancy? Yeah, Deborah Betts is the show to listen to. The recent one was Sabina Wilms on chapter five of the Suan about the resident manifestations of yin and yang. Oh man, that was a great conversation. And that book is pure poetry. Fantastic. You want to check that out. Special thanks to Sandy Camper and Catherine Numerovsky. Talking to them about gua sha has changed my practice because after speaking with them, I'm now using this stuff on a regular basis. It's made a big difference to my patients. That's a show that if you don't know much about gua sha or you're not using it, you're going to want to check it out. Hanging out with Jason Robertson and talking about Dr. Wong, a channel how patient, well, that show took me back to when we were both hanging in Beijing. That's a fun one to listen to, and you're going to learn some great things about channel palpation. And then there's the show at the beginning of the year, talking with Andy Ellis about herbs. Hey, thanks to Andy for that suggestion to go study some Chinese in Taiwan. Those were years well spent. And finally, check out the show of Toby Daly's on Sa'am Acupuncture. That interview... In his article over in the Journal of Chinese Medicine, it got me so fired up, I'm actively studying this method right now. There are 47 episodes out there right now, so if you're fairly new to Geological, well, get busy. Plenty of clinically useful material for you here. A couple of housekeeping things before we get into today's conversation. First, you might have noticed the lead-in to this show is different. 
as we move into the next year, I'm dropping the intro that you're probably used to hearing, or in fact, you're probably sick of hearing. I figure that people who find their way to the podcast, you know what you're looking for. You don't need an introduction. And for the folks that are new to the show, well, you'll find out soon enough what it's about. So as we go forward, we're going to be jumping into the meat of the conversation much sooner. Also, I want to remind you that you can help to support the effort here by keeping a little inspiration in the teacup. Much like NPR brings you free radio, I bring you these podcasts that cost you nothing except your time and attention. If you feel so moved, I'd love to have your financial support so I can continue to grow the podcast and continue to bring you these weekly conversations like the ones that you've been listening to. You can support Geological by going to the Patreon page and signing up for a monthly subscription. Subscriptions are only five bucks. That's right. Four tasty podcasts a month for roughly the cost of a fancy coffee drink. Hey, if you feel generous and you want to treat me to a glass of Cabernet instead, you can also choose to subscribe at a higher level. But seriously, Patreon is great because it handles monthly credit card payments in a secure fashion. And it gives me another venue, another place where I can provide you some extra content. So you can catch that over on the Patreon side of the house. If you like what you're listening to, well, there's more of it on Patreon. If you love Geological, please do consider supporting the show. You can subscribe by clicking on the Patreon button over at the website. That'll port you over there. One other thing. Oh, man, now I feel like Steve Jobs at a product announcement. One other thing. One other thing. I'm firing up an Instagram feed. I get some real gems in these conversations, and I thought I'd pull those out and share them with you from time to time via Instagram. If Instagram's a thing for you, then you can follow the geological feed over at, well, geological. Okay, here comes a quick word from some of the sponsors that helped to make geological possible. And again, everyone, thank you for coming on this journey with me in the past year. I'm looking forward to seeing where we go in the next 12 months. Here at Golden Needle, we are delighted to have been a part of Geological since its beginning a year ago. We love to support and help bring you Geological because the conversations are unrivaled. Where else can you listen to seasoned professionals deeply engaged in discussions aimed at illuminating areas of theory and practice of import to all practitioners of Chinese medicine? At Golden Needle, we know that medicine is a lifelong learning endeavor. We think the conversations here serve the acupuncture and East Asian medicine community by providing a forum for the free exchange of ideas, theory, and practice. We are dedicated to serving the practitioners who treat their patients with natural methods. Supporting Geological is one of the ways that we help to serve the Chinese medicine community and their patients. We are here to support you in your practice by stocking a wide inventory of essentials you need for your clinic at fair prices. Our website offers a vast amount of information. Check out the Formula Finder where we have categorized our products according to the format and formulas and strategies. Thank you, Geological, for bringing these conversations to our community of practitioners. Thanks for all the care and professionalism and for putting forth a library of discussions that we can all tap into when we need access to new ideas. We look forward to the conversations we'll hear in the next year. Hello, geological listeners. This is Josephine Spilka. I've been on a journey with Chinese medicine for over 30 years now. Since we're here in a show about communication, I want to share that one of the main ways I like to communicate is through questions. 
I love questions. They open us up to new places and feelings that can provoke insight and lead to all kinds of creativity. So let's consider this question today. What do you think is the most important ingredient in any prescription, whether it be an herbal prescription, an acupuncture treatment, or a lifestyle recommendation? I'll be back a little later in the show to share some thoughts on this with you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this special anniversary edition of Geological. My guest today is Nick Pohl. He's one of Geological's listeners who responded to the recent invitation to join me here on the show. Wow. It's hard to believe a whole year has gone by already, and here we are at show number 47. You know what that tells me? It tells me there's lots of really interesting people to talk to about Chinese medicine in our field. And it tells me that we not only have a rich tradition, we have a vital living medicine here in the present. I am particularly interested in sitting down with Nick today for this discussion because he has a deep interest in how we use words, enough so that he wrote a book, Words That Touch. Today, we're going to explore how we connect with our patients and how we can go far beyond the usual 10 questions so as to engage with the deeper structures and resources of our patients that lives in the body. Nick, welcome to Geological. Hi, Michael, and thank you very much for having me on your anniversary show, and congratulations indeed for such a fantastically interesting bunch of people that you've got together. Over the- oh, man, well, we just have interesting people in our field. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I'm curious. How did you find out about Geological? What uh, just what got you clued I in? I can't remember. It just you know things come to you on the internet when they're supposed to come. I guess. <laughs> it's so true, isn't it? Oh my goodness. Well, hey, Nick, I'd like to start a bit with your background and what got you interested in the use of language as part of the healing process. Oh wow. The um, well, narrative is a is a subject in itself. Do we believe the stories we tell about ourselves and do they really matter? Oh man, that's, that's great. <laughs> if you want a story and uh, publishers like stories, especially if you've got just published a book, I, something which does feel true in a, in a bodily sense for me, this getting interested in language goes back to me and my relationship with my dad. My dad was an academic. Um, He spent a lot of time writing books. Not that much time as as most dads of his generation with uh, in in being a dad. But the way he did show his feelings for us and the way he felt, you know, seemed to come alive as a dad was when he was reading us stories, quoting Shakespeare, making language games. It was all about language and relationship, I guess. And I've told that story a few times, but it's still, you know, I still feel that it is true. It's genuine. And so I started at a certain point, burned out in my normal professional career, as is often the case with people who get into complementary therapy. I, I got interested in in acupuncture. A friend of mine said, well, you're not looking great, Nick. Go and see an acupuncturist. I went to someone who was practicing five-element acupuncture. I got intrigued. She told me I would be good at doing something in this area. And uh, I'm sorry to say this, but I always knew I didn't want to stick needles into people. 
and eventually I found shiatsu and I, I just felt my hands knew something new a lot that that I that my head did not right and that my hands connected to the heart in a way which my head did not and so I got into shiatsu and I was just fascinated and I got a really new powerful sense of purpose I had very inspirational teachers someone jade what jade winter jade yeah winter jade yeah. was talking about pauline sasaki uh she came over to england each year and she was working there with cliff andrews who's, who was one of my teachers too and they they both started doing stuff that um w was really interesting really fascinating you know relating to energy relating to chi relating to ki as we call it in shiatsu in ways that I just, you know, I couldn't figure out what the hell were they doing? How could they see yeah. this stuff? How could they, make how could this they stuff see it? How, and how could they feel it? Yes. You know, you're yes. you're over here on the shiatsu side of the house. I love talking to you guys because <laughs> I really do. Because while many of us acupuncturists work in a, in a palpatory way, yeah, you guys have these conversations with the body from such a deep sensing place i don't even know what you call that place just deep deep sensing well i think that's not to digress too much from my narrative but for a moment i think that's a very important point you don't even know what to call it and that's a central part of why i felt i needed to write the book to explain there are some good neurological reasons why but just to come back to the story for a moment yeah, so I got really into doing this shit. So I, I got invited to start teaching at the college in London where I'd studied. And then after a while, something started sort of tapping me on the shoulder and saying, This isn't this isn't the whole story, Nick. And <sighs> and I didn't know quite what it was, but in in order to study, to find a way to understand what those great teachers were doing. I started learning NLP, which I, I'm pretty sure you have some acquaintance with. I have a little bit. It's 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 you know fairly in the culture these days. I think a lot of people have been exposed to uh, the structures and ways that we talk really shape our reality. And I heard uh, first of all, I, I I heard that it had something to do with how the how we our different senses relate to each other, which is very much how palpation works, how how the way we touch or the way we look can sort of synesthesize itself into, into our conscious awareness. And, and I also heard that there was this NLP conference coming up where John Hicks, who's one of the co-founders of, of the College of Integrated Chinese Medicine here in London, he studied with J.R. Worsley in depth. And he, he wanted to find out how Worsley did his stuff because Worsley uh, you know, didn't reveal all that much about his kind of the magic of his mastery. And so John Hicks started using NLP, what's the word, you know, without actually telling him. <laughs> I think Worsley got wise to this and uh, it, it didn't go too well. But it, um, certainly that was an inspiration for me that, that one acupuncturist could be trying to, as they say in NLP, model how somebody uses their delivers the magic and nlp if if you if you remember started from that idea of modeling how great therapists work virginia satir fritz pearls the founder of gestalt and milton erickson the grand mm -hmm. enemy of hypnotherapy in you know, 20th century america they were modeling these these people uh 
and finding out how they did what they did. And out of that, something called clean language, which is the model that I now use, the structure that I now use, developed. Um, but also out of the work of, mainly and chiefly out of the work of a, a New Zealand psychologist called David Grove. Anyway, coming back to my story. Um, all of this exposure to seeing people using language and using rapport and getting change to happen without even touching them, I thought, wow, this is equally amazing to the, the shiatsu mm -hmm. stuff. And probably, if I'm honest, I, I'd say I, I probably wanted to give up shiatsu and just do that. But something didn't allow that to happen. And I'm so, so grateful that it didn't. Because now what I've got, I feel, is really what works for me. It's a combination of listening to language and listening to words. I'm sorry, listening to language and listening to the body, listening to the chi, and noticing how they interact so fluently and fluidly and resonantly. And in a, in a way, if you leave out the language, you're leaving out a huge part of the person that you're working with. And I'll go into that a bit in a bit more detail. But um, that's the story. Does does it make sense? It has a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, it totally makes sense. One of the things that I love about acupuncture, and and you know, and when I say acupuncture, I'm really I should probably say East Asian medicine, right? I mean, this includes Twaina, this includes Shiatsu, this includes all the things that we do that allow us to interact with the with the organism, let's say. Yeah. Right. And one of the things I think is so fantastic is we can use our hands or we can use our needles and people can have deep, deep experiences that they might have after months or even years of therapy. Yeah. Because something in the body just shifts and eventually it will float up into consciousness. Now, the words can be really helpful and things like therapy can be helpful because you're, you're using words to fill in all these blank spaces that, you know, people kind of get lost in, whether that's a psychological kerfuffle or, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, more physical kind of thing. Of course, we know from the work that we do that the body and the mind are an integrated fabric. So we can really work anywhere. And, and so I'm, I'm particularly interested in how we can use both the words we use and the ways that we touch to, to help people get more information about themselves. Because it seems when people get more information about themselves, they often just can sort things right out. Yes. To bring that information into consciousness does help, in my opinion. And also that other model, which quite a few charismatic acupuncture people have used, you know, that you don't need to talk to them, just put the needles in, just listen to the pulses, and the change will happen. Um, that's, that's one way of thinking about it. For me, I think it's almost like a hare and a tortoise thing. I prefer the tortoise approach. I feel that if I can encourage the person I'm working with uh, to develop a more mindful relationship, first of all, with a symptom that that's caught, brought them along, secondly, with their whole mind-body, or body-mind, I would call it, then they will be developing a, 
a way of being with themselves and being in life that allows these things to come into consciousness. I think we put a lot of energy into keeping things away from our consciousness and mm -hmm. holding them mm -hmm. in the body. And that's all I say to people. That my only marketing ploy these days is to say, I'm helping you to develop a more mindful relationship with your own body. I don't say I'm going to help cure particular symptoms. That, you know, if that happens, that's great. That's how it works for me. Yeah. I, well, I want to dig into this because you just said that you like to help people have a deeper relationship with the symptoms that they have. And, and, and this rings a bell for me. This really, this, this, this just goes all the way through. And, and the reason that it does is because by and large, people come to us because they got a symptom and they want to get rid of the dang thing. And yet I've seen so many times in my practice, the symptom is some kind of messenger. It's some kind of placeholder. It's some part of them, a very loyal part of them that is not going away until a certain message gets heard. As a practitioner at this point, I've even gotten to the point where if people have a certain symptom, I want to make, I want to be darn sure that I don't take away something that they actually need to listen to. Yes. And I think right? I'd like to know more about how you help people deepen their relationship with a symptom so that maybe it can get heard or it can get resolved in whatever way it needs to get resolved so that things actually do get resolved and not just silenced and sort of kicked further down the road. Yes. I think that's a really important point about the power of um, things like acupuncture and herbal medicine you know, they can actually make changes which are not necessarily appropriate for the whole ecology of the person. They can just flick a few switches and maybe, rather like hypnotherapy, hypnotherapy is incredibly powerful, but it only works for a bit if the, if the ecology of the person doesn't really want that change. So that's why I'm talking about the tortoise approach is if you, if you go more slowly and you work with people who are genuinely willing to explore this, then you you tend to get change happening at exactly the right pay, pace for the whole system. And so I usually begin just with a little kind of mindfulness, meditative awareness process, asking a person just to sit quietly. If they don't know anything about mindfulness, I just talk them through it a bit. If they do, and most people do nowadays, it seems, if they do, then they just enter into that kind of state themselves. And we just begin in our shared field of togetherness to use some very, very simple questions to help them explore the sense of the symptom and what it might be telling them or where else it might be leading them and so on. Very rapidly, in most cases, the body-mind just loves it. It just says, wow, somebody is listening to me at last. And it begins to unfold in its own non-verbal way the kind of links and connections that we need to become aware of if we want to work with this. Then at a certain point, I just ask people, would you like to lie down now? We can explore this more with the shiatsu and um, energy work. And we can carry on uh, talking or the person can just drift off into some other zone or indeed I as I work can drift off into some other zone non-cognitive zone and by the end of all that 
um, I've, you know, people find that the changes that have happened are, are the right changes and they're not too fast and they're not too slow. Seems to be the way that it works well for me. Yeah. Can you give us an example of this? An, an example of this? Mm -hmm. yeah, like, <laughs> like, like, like some of the questions. I mean, you know, in, in Chinese medicine school, we learn these 10 questions that, that we're supposed to ask about this and that. And, yeah. And, and they're helpful, but it sounds like you're doing a whole other line of questioning. Absolutely. And I, I, I just wanted to emphasize at the beginning here that, that the diet, you know, the diagnostic questions, the, the health history questions, that's another matter. And that's really important. I'm not saying I don't ask those. And obviously, you know, have you seen your, your medical practitioner and those important questions? So I'm, I'm not getting rid of them. I'm just, once we get through that, we get into this place where the mind and the body can start uh, connecting. And if I could just prep this <laughs> with one bit of theory, I, I've got a little uh, case study I can show you here. But there's a chapter in my book devoted to the work of a very brilliant uh, British psychiatrist called uh, Ian McGilchrist. He spent 20 years on a book called The Master and His Emissary. And Essentially, I'm sorry, the master, the master and... and his emissary. Yeah, ooh, uh, and that's a metaphor for the relationship between the the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain. And almost single handedly, he has reclaimed this fascinating subject in um, for neuroscience because it was beginning to be ignored by neuroscientists. Brought it back to the center of attention. Why on earth? have we and all animals evolved with a brain that is split into two separate halves? And I'm not going to go into detail. You can see plenty on, on the web about his approach. But for me, it was uh, a real uh, insight into what we're really doing in, in mind-body therapy, what we're really doing when we're trying to communicate with Qi. With and the, the bottom line is simply this that for most people, the left hemisphere is the one that works with language. That's where the, the language centers are. In, in the terms of content, the left hemisphere is the side that loves to label things, to give things names, to put things into categories. It has interesting tendencies and predispositions. It, it's it is a bit like a manager. It does Yeah, you know, and it loves to think it knows what's going on. Exactly. And mm -hmm. and that's the that's the emissary part. Interestingly for us, it its way of thinking about the body is as a machine made up of separate parts, which when they go wrong need to be fixed. And I think that's how most of our clients usually come in at the beginning. They're they're in their managerial mind, they're they've got something that's gone wrong in the body. They're probably even annoyed with it by now and fed up and frustrated and so on. And That's why they're in our office. <laughs> yes. And that very, very left hemisphere approach is, is dominant. And, and it is usually dominant in our daily life. It's the manager that gets us through our day, everyday life. The right hemisphere, on the other hand, that's an interesting expression, isn't it? On the mm -hmm. other hand, is the one which is much more intimately connected with the body in the sense of the feelings that come up from inside us, from the guts, from the heart, from that kind of felt sense that they talk about in focusing, come up into conscious awareness. They come into 
the right side of the brain. It's the right side that is much better equipped to sense and interpret the somatic information, the emotional information that's coming at us all the time. And of course, between these two sides of the brain, the neuroscience geeks in the audience will know we have the thing called corpus callosum, which is nerve, nerve uh, neurons that connect the two sides. But actually, a lot of the neuronal activity in the corpus callosum is is um, inhibitory. It's like the left side is actually using that, that bridge to actually inhibit signals coming across from the right side, vice versa sometimes. It's like each side has to be doing its own thing and at the same time somehow sampling something of what's going on in the other side. Oh my God, it sounds like the American political situation. I, I'm sorry, it just sounds so much like that, which is one, why I love Chinese medicine because Chinese medicine has this metaphor of the, the human body with all its organs as, you know, as a governmental system. Why do we talk about right wing and left wing in politics? Because, you know, it's <laughs> interesting in itself. So that's, that's, that's the, the bottom line in what makes this work for me, knowing that that's how our brains work and that the right side is always trying to present information to the left, and that left is always kind of trying to inhibit it because anything that's new, the, the right side is the mindful side, the right side is the side that's in the moment, that's aware of everything that's going on, that peripheral vision that you were talking about before we started. Things that pop into the peripheral vision are coming in through the, the right side, and then the left side is often saying, well, uh, if it hasn't got a name, if it isn't in one of my categories, I don't recognize it. It's not happening. It even might be dangerous. So denial, I guess, lives on the left side of the brain. Mm. Um, and we all have to do a bit of denial to get through the working day, but some people seem to be really good at it. Anyway, so does that make sense as a, as a very, very brief summary of the neuroscience part of this? Yeah. Yeah, it totally does. I follow it. Okay. And what we're doing when we're asking these kind of questions, clean language questions, as it's called, we're using utterly simple questions, which the left side has to recognize as valid because they're, first of all, they're language. Second of all, they're simple. And third of all, they, they make sense. But we're using questions to inquire about what is going on in the body, in that nonverbal place. So the left side of the brain gets a little confused at first, sometimes, but it, it gradually has to admit that something is going on. And you often hear people saying things like, I don't know where this is coming from, but I got a funny feeling down here, you know, that sort of thing. So in a way, you're using language to, I don't know if the word trick is right, but to somehow soothe the left side and calm it down just enough that it's less inhibitory on the right side, so more information from the right side can come through. Absolutely. That's what we do in any kind of mindfulness process. Mindfulness is about calming down the left side and um, opening up access to the, the information that comes into the right side. I mean, when somebody starts off a, a meditation course or a mindfulness course, it's the left side that makes the decision. It's the left side that says, oh boy, this is going to be great. We're going to learn to concentrate better. We're going to learn to remember uh, things. <laughs> and it's got all this big to-do list. And then it, it has to actually do the mindfulness bit. And it thinks, well, well and, and it says, I can't do that. 
I haven't been allowed to say anything for, for 30 seconds. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what, what mindfulness training is about. Mm-hmm. It's about calming down the left side and um, so on. So I'll give you this little example here because you asked for some kind of example. And this is with a woman who is you know, pretty connected to her body. So I wasn't struggling hard and she'd had a few sessions with me already. She knew what was going on when I'm asking these questions. But she arrived and she said, you know, first thing, I'm exhausted from work. Okay, so there's your problem. I'm exhausted from work. And I don't make any presuppositions. The point about clean language is the, the therapist, the practitioner, makes absolutely no presuppositions at all about the meaning of that. That's why it's called clean. It's supposed to be keeping the, the clients, the patient's space clean of my stuff, my agendas, my desire to help, my um, interpretations, my diagnoses, and all that stuff. I just keep them all out because the questions are too simple to allow them in. So my first question is, and where is that sense of exhausted? Using her exact word, exhausted. So I'm exhausted from work. And where is that sense of exhausted? So that obviously is a, a direct invitation to, to get some somatic information, uh, probably. She might say, well, it's in my head. But anyway, that's my question. Where is exhausted? And her answer is, it feels very tight across here. And she gestures across the front of her abdomen. So she's already into feeling, uh, not that many you know, you might find patients aren't, some patients aren't getting into that so quickly, but she's certainly, when I ask her, she becomes aware that it's very tight across the abdomen. My next question is just to gather more information. And is there anything else about really tight across there? And then she says something interesting. I really want to do a good job. I really want to please them. I really want to please them which is not somatic information. It's something much deeper, isn't it? That's mm. psychological stuff. Okay, so I don't make any presuppositions again. I just ask her, and is there anything else about really want to please them? And she says, well, it gets tighter here. She suddenly feels across her abdomen that it's getting even tighter. So that was the, the second bit she said was, I really want to please them. And it gets tighter when she says that. So now I go back to the first bit she said. Anything else about do a good job? And then she says another interesting thing. That comes from my heart. Like she's suddenly aware that there's a feeling in her heart about doing a good job. And the way she said it sounded like it was quite a healthy thing. Whereas it looked pretty much as though the tightening in the abdomen and really wanting to please them wasn't such a healthy thing. So already it's kind of, from one, one little thing she said, we're getting some differentiation. The actual movement of the, of the chi is looking different. The locations in the body of these different uh, things are, are make, becoming clearer. So next, my next question is, I, you know, I decide, let's go with the please them thing. Anything else about you really want to please them and tighter there. So again, I'm using her exact words, which is very important. And then so her, her, her awareness, her attention comes back to the abdomen and she says, it's like a layer around me. Oh, now it's outside the body. Yes, exactly. So, and that, so I say, and what kind of layer around you? And she says, protection. 
And I say, and is there anything else about protection? And she says, it comes out from here, gesturing again to the front of the abdomen. It comes out from here. So now she's really getting into some sense, whatever it may be, of something moving from out, out from the body and into the energy field around her. And it's got something to do with protection. And I just say, and then what happens? And she says, it literally takes a lot out of me. It's draining me. And that's really interesting. She's aware that there's something moving out from the abdomen and that it's taking something out of her and it's draining her. So that really does seem to start linking back into her first thing about I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. And when I say, and, and when it's draining you, what would you like to have happen? Now, that's a different kind of clean language question. That's switching, asking, inviting the patient to um, switch into, well, what would you like to get from this? Uh, and the, the question we use in clean language is, what would you like to have happen? So, and when it's draining you, what would you like to have happen? And she said, to know better how to look after myself, mm-hmm. which is pretty sensible. And then I asked, and how would that be? And she said that she didn't uh, go on about how to look after herself. She just said, when I said, how would that be? She said, oh, it's relaxing that tight place here. It's, in other words, her abdomen was agreeing with her. She was immediately feeling if, that if she could know better how to look after herself, her abdomen is saying, yeah, yeah, please, that would be a very good idea, and I'll just relax here a bit just to show you I agree with you. So the body is talking back to her now. And that's, you know, very only a few minutes of work there, but the chi is moving. She has conscious awareness. She's actually chosen her own kind of outcome here. It's not me telling her she needs to do. Right. It's not, it's not the therapist saying, hey, you need, to, you need to take a break. You need a vacation. Yeah. And then she can lie down and we can begin the, the sort of the energy work, the meridian work, and carry on exploring it sometimes with words or, or not. It's very much what the, what the client, what the patient wants. But at the end, at the end of the session, you've got this, the outcome that she said, you know, you can check in again. Um, you know, and you were talking before about taking more care of yourself, any ideas that came to you during this session about how you might do that. So they go out with, with something to do, something that they've chosen, something that's naturally arisen organically from them. And uh, I think that's a pretty good process myself. Yeah. So I've noticed a couple things about this. First of all, you, you've clearly been doing this for a while. And, and you're skilled at it because just following your voice, I'm like already half in trance, right? <laughs> a little Milton Erickson-y there, right? Yeah. So, I mean, some of it, some of it is our ability to focus, our ability to be present to the other person, somewhat present to ourself. I'm curious to know how you kind of track what's going on in all this because as, as you went into this and you're saying, yes, these are very simple questions, you started going into it and, and I'm already like, golly, you're in this deep place and how do you, how do you know what's up and what's down? Does that question make sense? Well, that's, it's really interesting because what we're looking at in clean language is the sort of embodied metaphor. So if you say, how do you know what's up and what's down, that you're already, 
you, you have to pay attention to language in that level of detail. We use up to mean things which are generally positive. When I'm feeling up, I'm feeling good. Uh, we use down to mean things that are generally negative. And just paying minute attention to the, the words that people use and being really curious about them and taking them literally and sort of gently and respectfully asking permission of the left hemisphere, could we find out a little more about what you just said? That's the intention, that's the, the feeling behind these kind of questions. And the left hemisphere will say, well, mm -hmm. I, you know, no, there's, I, what I just said is what I just said. There's no need to go any deeper into it. Because that's where the left hemisphere lives. It lives in a virtual world of language. It doesn't, it's like the language doesn't have to connect to anything real in the left hemisphere. But we're inviting it to get into the body through, via the right hemisphere. That's yeah. what we're doing. Well, I've noticed, too, in the way that you were doing this, and, and I've read some of your book as well, that you often will link things together with the word and. And something I've noticed, this is just in my own practice. And this has just come about because you know I sit with people every day and ask them questions. Sometimes I will find myself saying something and you know they'll say something and I'll go, but, and then, and then I catch myself, I stop. And I go, oh, actually, it's not a but, it's an and. and. And then I'll ask them some kind of a question. I've noticed this for myself, that but really will stop something. And and kind of invites a little more information to come out. Well, the, the, they mean different things, obviously. And also, this where the right brain uh, comes into to, um, the understanding of language is in the sounds, in in the the way that the sounds, the vowels, and the consonants, the rhythm, the pace, the tone, the emotion in the language the way that all these things register in the patient's voice or in my voice, those are appreciated by the right brain, not the left. So all that aspect of language is also there, but it's, it's the right brain that's tuning into that. So literally, the but begins with a consonant. That's a, that's a hard one. Mm -hmm. It's a, a noise to the ear and is very soft and connecting kind of word. Yeah, you, you can just feel it emotionally, can't you? Yeah, okay, I got it. I feel that. And there's something you said in, in our email conversation before just setting up this interview. You said, sometimes I use just a few needles to, quote, set the change that already rippled through the room during the, quote, interview. <laughs> and I just thought that was that was lovely. That's exactly how I think about how I use shiatsu, that I'm trying to get the change to ripple through the person's body, through their mind, through the room, as you so accurately point out. It's, it ripples through the whole field between the two of us. It's registered in my body too. And then, the you know, well, would you like to lie down and let's set that. <laughs> let's allow that change yeah. to, to make its way through the whole mind-body system. Yeah. I, you know, it, it doesn't happen in every interaction I have with patients, but it happens, it happens often enough and it is a palpable sense. I mean, something really mm. ripples through the room. Something will come out, usually the patient's mouth. Sometimes I say it and, and I feel it, but often the patient says something and it 
just about knocks me over. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes they will catch it as they say it, but more often they will not. And so I, because I caught it, I simply feed it back to them just as a way of double checking that I heard it correctly. And when they hear it coming back to them, they go, yes, that's right. And then often they'll say, how did you know? Right? How did you know? And, and, and I'm thinking to myself, because you just told me. Hmm. And sometimes I'll tell them that. It's like, how did you know? Well, you just told me. They'll be quite shocked by that. And there's a good neurological reason for that, which is simply that the part of the brain on the left, in the left hemisphere that is in charge of speaking is separate from the part which is also in the left hemisphere, which is in charge of hearing. So when we're speaking, we're not necessarily hearing ourselves. And that's obviously you're, you're doing it really effectively in, in your way. And the, the clean language questions are designed to do it by, de by, um, specifically using the exact words that the client just used mm -hmm. and putting them back in, in these very simple questions. So it's not really the questions themselves that doing the work. It's, it's the words, hearing your words back. You, you know, in a way you don't need to ask any questions. You could just say the words back with your eyebrows slightly higher and it would have the same effect. I recently read a fantastic book on negotiation. And it's written by an ex-FBI hostage negotiator. Oh, I've heard of this. Someone else recommended it. Yeah, yeah. This guy, his name is Chris Voss. Hey, you acupuncturist listening to this, <laughs> Chris Voss never split the difference. If you want to run a business, any business, if you want to get along better with your spouse, this book is fantastic. When I first heard the words FBI hostage negotiator, I thought, oh, this is a really like, you know gloves off, you know, hard knuckled negotiation. Nope. Super soft based on the work of Carl Rogers. It's based on empathy. It's based on connection because when you're negotiating with somebody, you don't want to fight them. You want to connect with them. And so one of the things he talks about in doing negotiations, if, if someone says something and you'd like more information, you do exactly that. You just take the last few words they said, ideally using their words, and you just feed it back and then you shut the hell up and you let the silence work. Mm. And that is an invitation to go in and bring something else out. And, and you can use this in negotiations for like, you know, the lease on your office, or you can use this in sitting with a patient not in, not to manipulate them into something, but to invite them into a deeper experience of their own experience. And so you can better understand them. Absolutely. And one way to think about it, it comes from another um, uh, researcher. This is Alan Shore, who's based in California. I spent many years thinking from a psychotherapist. He's a psychoanalytic psychotherapist in his background, but he did a lot of research on this essential question in psychotherapy, is it just the language or what else is going on? And um, brilliantly has come up, I guess the soundbite really that sums it all up is, the, the way he puts it is that while our, the left brains of two people in the room are having a 
conversation verbally, the right brains of these same two people are having another conversation, a different conversation. And that's the way I think about it. I'm using the clean language questions to bring some um, sense of both these sides of the brain can be listening to the same conversation. But at the same time, there are things which I'm aware that I'm doing, especially when I'm actually doing the hands-on work, that will never come into my cognitive awareness. And that there's, there's just this really deep conversation going on between my hands, my embodied sense of self, and the person's energy and body. And it's just about listening to that and allowing it to happen and keeping the left brain quiet (laughs) or occupied with other things. Uh, But I think that's a really important model to have in mind when you're, you're doing your acupuncture interview and this person's body is trying to speak to you. The, you know, it, don't ignore the things that happen. I, I sometimes find a person's talking about their issue and their hand goes and points, literally points to a certain acupuncture point, say on their leg or on their shoulder. They aren't even aware that they're doing it. But the body, it's almost as if the body knows that I know about points, I know about meridians, and it's just trying to tell me. It's trying to short-circuit the left brain. It's trying to tell me, look, this is what I need. Hi, Josephine here again. I hope you've been enjoying this episode and considering my question, what is the most important ingredient in any prescription? You might think that what I'm about to say is completely counter to all you've learned about medicine. But in my experience with myself, my clients, and my students, this is the one thing that is the most true. The most important ingredient in any prescription is you. I don't mean you, the ego, or the persona, you, the acupuncturist. No, I mean you, the living, breathing, sensing being who has feelings, perceptions, and thoughts arising in every moment. When you are listening to a person's pulse, looking at their tongue, or hearing them speak, what is arising inside you will be the most important guide for creating a powerful prescription of any kind. No matter where you are in your journey now, I wonder if you feel connected to your own knowing, to your own power as a practitioner. What might you need now to feel more connected, more confident, more strong in your own practice? I'd love it if you'd talk to me. Email me at josephine at essencepresence.com or go to essencepresence.com. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Now, let's listen to the rest of today's conversation. I love this idea that when we're sitting in the room with a client or a patient, the left sides of our brain are having a conversation. The right sides of our brain are having a conversation. That, that those are both going on, they're going on in very different realms. I am curious to know what you do for yourself when you're working to help quiet the left a bit so that you can dip into what's coming up from the right, even if you will never know completely cognitively what's going on there. How do you quiet the left down and then kind of know that you're plugged in? 
I like, I mean, there's so many ways to talk about this. The guy that does it for me is uh, the, the, the Zen master who wrote, or he... he um, oh, Roshi, uh, yeah, Suzuki Roshi. He wrote that book, you know, it was, it was recorded lectures, actually, you know, some of his students and, and he who put it all together. And he talked about beginner's mind and expert's mm. mind, that really famous quote, in the beginner's mind, there are very many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And I don't think that means that the expert's mind is bad and the beginner's mind is good. It means we need to recognize these two sides of ourselves and once you put it together with that neurolog neurological stuff about right hemisphere, left hemisphere, you see, oh yes, the expert mind is the left hemisphere that knows and categorizes and ha has choices to make and decisions to make and um, outcomes to secure and so on, treatment plans to fulfill, boxes to tick. That's the left hemisphere, that's the expert mind and it needs to be able to do its thing. Then there's the beginner's mind, which, as as he says, I've got the quote here, I think, the, the practice of Zen, he says, is beginner's mind. That's it. In a nutshell, the whole practice of Zen is beginner's mind. Empty, free of the habits of the expert, ready to accept, to doubt, open to all possibilities. And that's that's the mind I... I just do a little deal with myself every time I sit down next to a, the client uh, ready to start some shiatsu that this is uh, beginner's mind time now, please. And and the emptiness, you know, in, um, in Zen philosophy, the whole idea of emptiness is the place to come from, that emptiness from which everything arises. That's That's it, you know, just be empty and allow things to arise and keep that expert mind as the as the loyal servant. That That's what the title of Ian McGilchrist's book, The Master and His Emissary, means. It's like the master is beginner's mind. The emissary the, is like the, the chamberlain, the prime minister, the, the loyal assistant. So we're, in a way, we're talking heart and pericardium functions here. Very much, I think, yes. The way the heart and the brain talk to each other or don't. Hamlet says, at the beginning of Hamlet, he's he's really troubled because his father's just been just died very suddenly. Nobody knows how or why, so he's traumatized. Meanwhile, his uncle has married his mother <laughs> with, within a few months, and they're having a huge party to celebrate. Only a few months after his father's been buried, he's the only one in the whole court who who finds this odd, and he says. Break, break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. Oh, my. Oh. And it's very embodied, isn't it? It's like his tongue can't actually speak the truth, and so his heart breaks. That's so Chinese medicine, isn't it? Oh, man, isn't it, though? Well, and it's a source of so much trauma when you think about it. Hmm. And the source of the so-called talking cure. You know, the idea that when we begin to speak, when the tongue begins to move, and what's in the heart can be expressed, then things begin to heal, or at least to be heard. Well, and isn't it? I'm I'm going to express my uh, loss of some Chinese medicine basics here, but okay. isn't the tongue related to the heart? Doesn't the yes, heart yes. open to the tongue? I think that's exactly. yeah. We have Absolutely. that in Chinese medicine, don't we? 
yeah. there it is. I love it when you see these absolute exact parallels between Western culture and Asian culture. Uh, that's one of them. And of course, in Shakespeare's day, unlike now, the the language was very embodied. Well, then again, we got Shakespeare. I mean, I, maybe the language was embodied, maybe it wasn't, but you got someone like Shakespeare, that guy knows how to use some language. Yes, and in a very embodied mm -hmm. way, yeah. Well, I realize I might need to go go reads me a little more Shakespeare here. Oh, oh please do. Geez. I could go I could go on with that one. That's the, the great thing about that quote, that Hamlet's actually talking to his body, to his heart. And the this sense that you can communicate with your body, of course, is what's coming back now in mindfulness. The in mindfulness we bring our attention to the body. We listen to the body. We wait for some response to come if, in certain kinds of mindfulness. Yeah. And I, I just think it's wonderful. The, the times that we are living in, honestly, the way that East and Western things, and not just Eastern and Western things um, in terms of complementary stuff, but the way that science and the so-called wisdom traditions are coming together, the mindfulness is a wonderful example of that because Mindfulness would not be such a big thing as it is right now if it weren't for the fact that academic research, extremely expensive, double-blind clinical testing has been done on mindfulness. And it was when those tests showed that it was as effective, if not more effective, than, than antidepressants for depression. That's when the boom in academic studies of mindfulness began. There was an exponential growth in papers written about it from that time on. So these the coming together of these things is, I think, the, this, these are the times that we're living in. In some ways, we're so lucky to be living in this time. Yeah. Hey, I want to I get back to something that you said earlier in the show that really caught my attention. And, and, I, and I think it's germane to, to the conversation at this point. You said that there are neurological reasons for not knowing something when we're working. Do you remember saying that? Yes, yes. That's that, that's what, all I was, what I meant by about the left brain not wanting to know stuff. And, and for not being able to give a name to something, I think is what you said. Mm -hmm. Something like that. So I, I have a specific question about that. And, and the question is this, because the left side, and I'm speaking here of me and my experience, maybe the listeners have this experience too. There is the left side that wants to make the diagnosis. There's a the left side that, you know, wants to do something because, you know, I'm being paid to do something. Yeah. And, and then there's just, you know, my own ego that feels like I want to make sure that I'm given money's worth. And at the same time, there's a part of me that does trust the piece that I don't know, but often I don't really trust. How can I, I and if, if the listeners have this issue too, quiet that left brain down just another turn or two on the volume dial hmm well how you do that i think it's just do some mindfulness whatever works for you and i don't mean you have to sit and meditate but bring your attention to your body in a mindful way that doesn't mean go to the gym and pump weights it means bringing your attention to your body in a mindful way. I mean, I can walk my dog in a mindless way when I'm just taking her around the block because I've got to walk the dog. 
Or I can take my dog for a walk in a mindful way, in which case, instead of pulling her along on a lead, because uh, she's smaller than me and I can do that, I'm listening to that lead, that connection between the two of us. I'm allowing it to be slack. I'm allowing her to tell me where she wants to go as well as me telling her. Mm. I'm feeling my feet on the pavement and so on. I'm becoming more aware of the impatient thoughts in my mind. I'm coming back to my breathing. I'm aware that we are two mammals together engaged in an enterprise of walking. And all these things, that's all there is to it, I think. So you take it, you take yourself back into your physiologic, kinesthetic being. I, 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 I mean, here's my left mind again, which loves to think it's running the show. It's usually wrong. It's often wrong, but it likes to think it's running the show. Are there any clean questions I could use on myself to quiet my left side down? Well, we can experiment now if you like. With that, would you oh. would you like to try that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, should I buckle up? <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> the The point is, it's just an exploration. There's, we're not trying to make a change. That's we're just exploring something. We're just exploring something, and that is a really important attitude to have in mind. I think in any therapeutic work, because if you already think, well, I've got to make a change for this person. You're setting yourself up in an unnecessary way. The, the, the woo way, the, the non-doing, doesn't really have a chance to get in there. Yeah. This is such a contradiction with our work because, yeah. you know, people come in because they want us to do something. People do have something they want to get rid of. Our contract with someone is, I'm going to help you get rid of the thing you don't want or help you get the thing you don't have that you do want. Yeah. So, so here we are being these East Asian medicine practitioners- <laughs> putting that over on the side and saying, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So well, how would you, would you frame that? What, what's, what's the, how would you describe this relationship you have with the, the left hemisphere's way of thinking? Oh, wow. Um, notes as we go here. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> and and let, let we, the contract is also important that, we need to just agree that maybe we've got five minutes to explore this. You know, we're not going to do a whole psychotherapy session. I'm not a psychotherapist. No, no, no. We're not going to do a whole. We're not <laughs> so, but, yeah, let's take let's take five to seven minutes here. Okay, five to seven. And the other part of the contract, Michael, is that is that you're as much in charge of this process as me. Okay. okay. Yeah, we're in it together. I'm not an expert in any sense here, except in the use of the the language. Mm -hmm. You're the expert, and we're trying to tap into your expertise. Yeah. Okay. So when you were asking me about my le the left side of my brain, uh, it's the part that really likes to think it knows what's going on and it likes to feel proud of itself. It really likes to think it knows what's going on and it really likes to feel proud of itself. So there's two things. Mm -hmm. which, which of those draws you the most? Knows what's going on or proud of it? Yeah, it's the, it likes to know what's going on. Likes to know what's going on. Oh, yeah. And is there anything else about it likes to know what's going on? Well, I, I have a certain family member that is so keen on always knowing what's going on. Mm -hmm. This is an influential person in my life. And this person many times drives me batshit crazy because they're always so concerned with 
knowing that they know. And there's a part of me that has spent much of my life hanging out more on that right side, okay with not knowing. But is it a but or is it an and? And there's still the left side sort of tapping its foot going, come on, when when are you going to get this knowing down so you got it down? Then you can feel comfortable. Oh, then you can feel comfortable. Then you can feel secure. It's connected to security and comfort. Hmm. Knowing is connected to security and comfort. And listeners at home, you can hear how Michael is already making his own connections here. Um, exactly. You, you're just running with the ball here. Um, it's connected to security and comfort. And is there anything else about security and comfort when this uh, voice of this family member that can drive you batshit crazy finds it so important uh, to know what they know? Is there anything else about security and comfort? Yeah, when I think about this in the context of working as an acupuncturist, oh boy, here we go. I actually am putting my patients in the position of that particular family member in that I think they're wanting to make sure that I know what I'm doing and that I know what's going on for them and I know how I'm going to be able to help them with their problem. Mm. And so a good question here then would be when you you notice that you're putting your patients in the position of that particularly, particular family member, what would you like to have happen? Yeah, well, I'd like to recognize that so I don't do it because it's not very helpful. Mm. Right? Because then I'm not interacting with my patient. I'm interacting with my idea of who this family member is. And how would that be to uh, recognize that? Oh, it would be super helpful. I could just like recognize that and go, oh yeah, there, there, <laughs> there it is again. And just drop it, you know, like any mindful practice. Oh yeah, there it is again. Yeah. Great. Hello. Yeah. Back to where we were. And what, what, how, what difference would that make for your patient? Well, I'm not sure what difference it would make for the patient, but it, the difference that it would make is that I'm actually listening to them yeah. and not not listening to some projection of this family member that I have in my own mind. Okay. Uh, and is that a good place to finish? Oh, yeah. That's, that's great. That's super helpful. That's something I can use in, you know, when I go to work this afternoon and help me stay, it'll help me stay more present to the person in front of me. It, it it leads beautifully into the other little quote that I had from from Shunryu Suzuki, which is, when you listen to someone, forget what you have in your mind and just listen. If your mind is empty, it's ready for anything and open to everything. <sighs> that's that's such a you know the way you came to that little conclusion there is is a perfect example of that. I think. Yeah, that's that's lovely. Thank you. I uh, thank you for trying. Curious to see how this <laughs> unfolds. <laughs> oh boy. <clears throat> well, this is probably a pretty good place to wind this conversation yeah, sure. down. Is there? Is there? Uh, but but in the spirit of the conversation, is there anything else that you'd like to share before we wind it down? Um. Yeah. I. I just. What, I also wanted to talk about one other person who really inspires me in this whole approach, 
And I think it's really important to remember when we're learning to stick our thumbs into points or needles into points, that in the in the tradition, the healing arts were part of a whole other bunch of arts that you were supposed to learn. You're supposed to learn martial arts or Tai Chi, calligraphy, poetry, music, you know, in traditional Asian approaches to being a well-rounded person. And I get a lot of inspiration just from opening up to that. And somebody who really does it for me, again, is, is a Japanese uh, concert pianist called Mitsuko Uchida. Ah, we'll have to put her on the show notes page. Yeah, and the, yeah. she's one of the greatest, I think she must be in her late 60s, early 70s now, I don't know, but she's one of the greatest interpreters of Mozart music. She came from Japan at a young age because she was something of a prodigy to Vienna, the absolute capital of Western classical music, and you know, developed her her career and became known and so on. But I first came across her when I was reading a review and the review said she doesn't get in the way of the composer's intention or impose her own will on the music. She doesn't show off her own style or virtuosity. And then it said something which really rang a bell for me. She said, as a performer, she truly listens. And I thought, yes, that's what Shatsu is. We're performing. It's a performing art in a way with an audience of one. And it's all about listening. Uh, and as a performer, she truly listens. And by listening, you imagine she allows you to hear more clearly what Mozart was hearing inside his own head. And I thought that was just beautiful. That's what we want our, our patients to experience. They want, we want them to hear what's going on inside of them, not something we're telling them. We're not trying to impose stuff on them. It just summed everything up for me. And um, if, the, if that's a, a good point to leave it, then I'd like to leave you with, with that. If you watch her on YouTube performing, which is easy to do, you see how incredibly embodied she is as a performer. She, she's tiny, but she puts so much feeling, so much movement, so much facial expression into the way these notes resonate through her. It's extraordinary. I do recommend it. Yeah, we'll put that on the show notes. I am looking forward to having a visual of a person who is both performing through the process of listening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that sounds great. Nick, thank you so much for joining me here at this uh, anniversary edition of Geological. And congratulations again, and please keep going. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Well, friends, that's it for today's anniversary show. I hope that you have enjoyed this conversation with Nick as much as I have. Hey, I've got a little something extra for you here today. It's a conversation. You'll find it over on the Patreon side here in a week or two. It's a conversation between the Jim Lake Carol Jones and Lorraine Wilcox. Both of these acupuncturists have been at it for a long time, and they knew each other many, many years ago when they both worked at NPR. It's an opportunity for them to catch up with each other over the years. I think you'll enjoy that conversation. Here's a few minutes of it. And if you want to listen to more, Patreon is the side of the house to go check out for that one. Again, thank you. For joining me for this anniversary podcast. Now let's have a quick listen to this other conversation that I think you'll enjoy. And you have 
created innovative ways to share what you're discovering and reading and publishing. And I want to talk about that in a moment and ask you some more questions. But this translation discussion is fascinating for me because I have tried to take classes and it's been challenging, I think, for most people to make the time for it, especially if you're practicing full time, you have to make the time. And then there's this whole issue I discovered with interpretation. So it's not like a character automatically translates into a specific English language concept. There's one character can have a few different interpretations. Yeah, depending on true. Yeah. So that's why I'm curious about the whole process of independent study versus being in a class with, you know, more rules and deadlines and homework and stuff like that. <laughs> you know. Part of the problem is like I'm an impatient person and I always do things too quickly. Um, other people are very meticulous and being fast or being slow doesn't mean being smarter or, or less smart. It doesn't mean being better or less good, but they're just people who by nature are meticulous. And then there are people who by nature just do it the quick and dirty way and it's good enough. And I'm a, like more of the do it the quick and dirty way and get it done type person than I should be then is good for me. So if I took classes at this point, I'd just be so bored and so impatient and I just want to cut to the chase. So for me, I think it was good to find passages and to, that w interested me so that even from the start, I was getting stuff out of it rather than just doing exercises. But this way also means that my grammar is less good and I'm going to make certain types of errors from being too sloppy. So do you remember when you started what text you began, what medical text you started reading? I don't remember really what I first started with, but very early I liked Zhang Jiebin, who wrote, he was a Ming Dynasty doctor. He died in 1640 and wrote a lot of really big books. And I didn't have, in the beginning, I wasn't trying to translate a book. I was just trying to find a passage here or a passage there that was interesting. I also, I love Huang Di Neijing, um, you know, Ling Xu and Su Wen. So I've been playing in that for a long time, but I know my time period is not the Han Dynasty 2000 years ago. The time period that I mostly like what they're saying and can more or less understand what they're doing and feel like it influences the way I view medicine. This is the Ming Dynasty, which began in 1368 and ended in 1644. And so I've spent a lot of time with a number of different Ming Dynasty doctors. And, you know, Chinese has changed over the dynasties. So you get used to the language that tended to be used in a certain time period, and then you're less good at reading works from other time periods, either before or after. So I guess my interest in Neijing has as I understand it now, like, of course, any Ming Dynasty doctor would have studied Neijing. And so 
I actually care more about how Ming Dynasty people would read Neijing than I care about how Han Dynasty people would read it, if that makes any sense. Because since all the doctors I translate would read it, I want to understand it the way the doctors I translate understand it because it influenced them. And did you have you found that the that there is a difference and that there are particular things you can pull out from Ming Dynasty physicians who read Neijing versus Han Dynasty? Well, one thing, I know you know this, but some of the listeners may not. On Facebook, there's some groups like Scholars of Chinese Medicine, which you really can bring up some topic from Neijing and discuss it and and whatever. Um, and one of the things that we've been discussing lately and I think is important to understand is that when Neijing was written, it was much more channel-based and not all the points were in it. And even some things that are point names today were probably regions in Neijing. And so if Chuepan, which is the name of stomach 12 in Neijing, meant the whole supraclavicular fossa and not the one particular point, but in the Ming dynasty, they were more inclined to read it as the one particular point, which isn't how the Han dynasty people saw it. I don't know if that's too weird a example, but... Well, that's very helpful. I mean, it's really fascinating to discover these different ways of even looking at the statements in the books and how you, there are lots of different ways to interpret what's being said and then to adapt for your own practice. So, yeah, the, the ideas are interesting. This is what happens is we think we know stuff because we learned it in acupuncture school. And of course, this stuff is part of TCM style. But if I go back and read Ming Dynasty stuff or Han Dynasty stuff, knowing the things that I think I know now, I'm going to misinterpret because the same term may have had different implications at that time, may refer to something else at that time. And so one of the things that's really been hard to learn is like kind of to strip away the things I think I know now and try and only know the things that say the Ming Dynasty doctor would know for that period of that I'm translating that. So it's kind of like creating a virtual Ming dynasty mind, um, as opposed to using my 21st century mind when I read. It's imperfect. It's not that I can really do it, but otherwise you make errors by reading in things that they didn't actually say, but it seems similar enough to what you learned in school. So then you see it through those that colored glass. Hey friends, thanks for listening to Geological. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you like it, share it with a few of your friends. And if you'd like to get more of this kind of content, I've got some extra stuff over on the Patreon page. The Patreon page allows you to help support the show by becoming a contributing subscriber. Subscribers to the show get some extra content. I got a few goodies over there that you won't find over here on the mainstream. If you're crazy about Geological, it's a way to get some extra content, and it's a way to help support the show, show your appreciation. As ever, thank you so much for listening. You're the reason that I do this podcast. Mm-hmm.